Hi everyone, this is Father Conrad. We're gonna do something special today because of the news of the passing of Pope Emeritus Benedict the 16th. Um, we're gonna give you his episode for Habemus Papam a little out of order. His episode is episode 263, we're not quite there yet, but I had already been doing a lot of the research for it after reading this really beautiful biography about him by uh, the German uh, journalist, Peter Sebald. And um, so I had a lot of the, the work already done. And when the news came of his failing health, uh, we decided to finish it and to get it out there for you uh, as you're praying for him and, and, and contemplating his effect on the church. So without ado, hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 263, Benedict the Sixteenth. So after the incredible history of St. John Paul II, the question was who could really fill his dynamic, holy, and well-traveled shoes? And to the surprise of many, the cardinals turned to an understated, bookish German professor who would become Pope Benedict XVI. Pope Benedict was born Joseph Aloysius Ratzinger on Holy Saturday, April 16, 1927, in Marktel, Germany. He was the son of a Bavarian police officer and one of three children. He grew up primarily in small, rural Bavarian towns where his father served, uh, sheltered by an omnipresent Catholic culture and a stable traditional lifestyle. It was a place where the church was the center of society and prayer and the study of the faith was present at home and at school. Joseph grew up a pious young boy when he first saw Cardinal Michael von Favdehaber, the Archbishop of Munich, who came to town for confirmation. He told his friends quietly, I want to be a cardinal someday. He was quiet, studious, and very focused on the church. Yet world events shaped Joseph's life, even in the small Bavarian towns that his father was assigned to. Joseph's father, Joseph Ratzinger Sr., was vehemently anti-Nazi. And as the, anti, as the Nazi party came to greater prominence in society, he recognized that he wouldn't be able to serve much longer in the police force. So he used all the family's savings to buy a small abandoned farmhouse in Traunstein near the Austrian border to hopefully lay low and avoid Nazi notice. But as the war progressed, the Nazis began to become more and more active. The fact that Joseph attended a high school seminary did not prevent him from being drafted into the Hitler Youth at age 14. And then from there in 1943, from being sent to serve in the anti-aircraft detachment of the German army outside of Munich. As the allies came closer to Munich, Joseph deserted the, the army and returned to his family's home. And once the allied forces arrived, he was sent to a POW camp for several months before he could finally be released and returned to his studies. Now, after the war, Joseph and his older brother Georg entered the major seminary in Munich where he excelled academically. His brother, who was a devotee of church music, pursued uh, studies in the organ and was found in the organ loft all day, while Joseph was constantly in the library, which earned them the nicknames Orgelrots and Buchrots. Joseph, while nerdy, also had a good sense of humor. There are many little vignettes of his time in the seminary, but my favorite was that every time he saw applesauce on the menu in the seminary dining room, he shouted out Habemus Apfelmus, which means we have apple applesauce. The two brothers were ordained priests together by Cardinal von Hopfalbehaber and then returned home to celebrate their first masses as priests in their little Bavarian church before returning to seminary to complete their studies. And this was kind of the Catholic culture at the time, but when Georg, who was going to celebrate his first mass first, was getting ready to do it, the entire town showed up at their family house with a marching band and a parade and paraded the two brothers to the church. Uh, and the whole town was there to celebrate uh, these two young priests from their town. Joseph won a prestigious scholarship for his dissertation on St. Augustine and the identity of the church as the people of God. And he continued his studies with a habituation, which is a European degree, which is usually necessary for a career in academics. And he wrote a work on St. Bonaventure. 
Joseph nearly didn't get his habituation. His, the professor who was entitled to judge's paper ripped it to shreds, partially out of jealousy, it seems. But in the end, he received his degree and began to look into a career in teaching. The young father Ratzinger began his teaching in his home seminary in Freising, but he quickly moved on to bigger and brighter things. He was recruited to be a professor of theology at the University of Bonn, the new capital of the divided West Germany. And there he made a huge splash. His lectures were standing room only, and no one taught like Ratzinger did. He brought the newest biblical theology and patristic sources to play, and it was refreshing and tremendously popular. It caught the attention, in fact, of his local bishop, the Cardinal Joseph Frings, Archbishop of Cologne. Cardinal Frings asked Ratzinger to compose a speech that he was going to give in Genua in preparation for the newly called Second Vatican Council. And the title of the talk was The Council on the Background of the Present Time in Contrast to the First Vatican Council. It caused a sensation, so much so that when Pope John XXIII got hold of it, he summoned Frings to the Vatican to tell him how pleased he was. This cemented Ratzinger's place as Frings' theological advisor and sometime ghostwriter. And as the Second Vatican Council began, Ratzinger found himself attached to the most influential council father and in Rome for every session. Now, we've talked about the Second Vatican Council in several other episodes, but for the first time, we see it from the perspective of one of the periti, or advisor theologians. While the bishops discussed, the advisors worked together to hammer out ideas and bring them to the fore, to, and bring to the fore new possibilities and revising documents, which would later be voted on by the council fathers. I can't go through all the play-by-play -play here, but it's pretty clear that Father Ratzinger was incredibly influential in throwing out the Preparatory Commission's draft document on divine revelation and drafting an entirely new base text. He was widely respected and worked cohesively with great theologians present, such as Henri de Lubac and Yves Congar. Few theologians did more during the Second Vatican Council than Joseph Ratzinger. In 1966, he was appointed to the theological faculty at the University of Tübingen, one of the most prestigious of all German universities. And here he encountered the radicalism of the 60s and began to see how the Second Vatican Council was being interpreted by the world. A lot of sources will tell you that in 1968, he changed from a liberal theologian to a conservative theologian because of his uh, seemingly liberal position in the Second Vatican Council. But that's just not the case. Father Ratzinger's theology continued to flow from his experience of the Second Vatican Council. It was rooted in the council's um, desire to return to the sources and to be filled with the biblical sources of things. Um, and he knew the council from the inside. But on the outside, he himself described a second council, council of the media, that had very different views than what the council fathers were saying. And those uh, fathers were interpreting it in a very different way. In March 24th, 1977, Ratzinger was appointed the Archbishop of Munich at Freising. And shortly thereafter, he was made the Cardinal Priest of Santa Maria Consolatrice al Tiburtino at the last consistory of St. Paul VI. In 1978, Paul VI died and Cardinal Ratzinger entered the conclave that elected Pope John Paul I. And then during that time, he was sent by Pope John Paul I to Ecuador for a national Marian Congress. And it was there that he heard the news that the Pope had died. It was one of the few major events that John Paul II had in his very brief pontificate and, and Cardinal Ratzinger was a part of it. He then returned to Rome for the conclave that elected Pope John Paul II in 1978. Now, Joseph Ratzinger had been introduced to Karol Wojtyla, now Pope John Paul II, through the influence of the great German philosopher Josef Pieper. Pieper had heard Wojtyla speak at a conference and immediately thought that he had to put Ratzinger in touch with him. And so the two corresponded and exchanged books, and it was pretty clear from the beginning that Cardinal Ratzinger was on the new Pope's radar. In 1981, the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith resigned, and Pope John Paul II tapped Cardinal Ratzinger to come to Rome. 
He served as prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith from 1981 until 2005. Now, during that time period, we can talk a lot about how Cardinal Ratzinger was the main doctrinal theological forces in the incredible papacy of St. John Paul II. He was there for a tremendous amount of time. He was one of the Pope's top advisors. A lot of ink has been spilled over the years characterizing Cardinal Ratzinger in that role as strict, backward-looking traditionalists. You might have heard the, the terms the Panzer Cardinal or, you know, very strict uh, way of doing things. And, you know, there, there are some things that can help promote that narrative. He had several important interventions as prefect, which were fairly strict and doctrinal. Most importantly, the Congregation's document, uh, Dominus Jesus, and his inter interaction with uh, liberal, uh, liberation theology. But Cardinal Ratzinger recognized that his role as prefect was not to impose his own ideological or theological thought on the church, but to safeguard the faith which has been passed down, which required a stricter approach, even if he, as a theologian, would have speculated more and allowed more room for speculation. But his understanding of his role was not merely restrictive, it was also positive as well. He was at the forefront of St. John Paul II's publication of the official catechism of the Catholic Church. That was one of the projects that he was tasked with. And it was one of the most important doctrinal activities of St. Jean Paul II's papacy. His time at the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, coincided with an increased awareness of the sexual abuse crisis in the church. And Cardinal Ratzinger as prefect had special jurisdiction over a lot of those cases. And he was known to be pretty ruthless in prosecuting priests who had committed abuse, even before the 2002 spotlight scandal in the American church. He was in the forefront of zero tolerance in those cases. Cardinal Ratzinger was not one who wanted the spotlight, nor was he hungry for further honors or power. His coat of arms, both as cardinal and as pope, depicts St. Corbinian's bear. And the story goes that St. Corbinian was going on a pilgrimage to Rome. A bear came and ate his pack animal, so he had no way to get to Rome. And so the saint admonished the bear and required him to be his beast of burden the rest of the way to Rome and put his saddle on him and rode him back. Cardinal Ratzinger saw himself as a pack animal of sorts, doing his part for the church as he was asked to do it. It's kind of a humble servant. He himself didn't really want to continue his work in Rome. And so several times he asked Pope John Paul II to allow him to resign and to return to a scholarly life and to write some books. But each time the Pope denied him. In 2005, at the death of St. John Paul II, Cardinal Ratzinger was the Dean of the College of Cardinals and indeed one of only two voting cardinals who had participated in the conclave previously. Everyone else had been appointed by St. John Paul II. And the only other exception was Cardinal William Wakefield Baum of Washington, D.C. As dean, he presided over the funeral of the deceased pope and the opening of the conclave. Now, already speculation was going around that he would succeed his friend and co-worker, and Cardinal Ratzinger was not happy about it. He tried to get the word around to the cardinals. Should not choose him. He was an administrator. He was a, a scholar. He didn't want to take this burden. But it was not to be. On April 19th, 2005, he was elected and took the name Benedict XVI. Appearing before the crowds at St. Peter's, he said that after the pontificate of the great Pope John Paul II, the cardinals had chosen him a humble worker in the Lord's vineyard. I signori cardinali hanno eletto me un semplice umile lavoratore nella vigna del Signore. It's hard to describe a papacy which is so historically recent, and a play-by-play -play isn't particularly helpful. A lot of people focus on certain areas of scandal, for example, the, the Vatileak scandal towards the end of his papacy, or the early media storm surrounding his quoting of a Byzantine emperor's description of Islam in his Regensburg address. But another way of approaching it might be, you know, a, a, a 
a play-by-play of, of events and from his first large event at World Youth Day in Cologne, in which he really kind of came into his own out from the shadow of St. John Paul II to his 2008 visit to Washington, D.C., which I include here since I, I was you know, blessed enough to attend his mass at the time, uh, to his resignation. I think the most helpful way of looking at his papacy, though, is in terms of his writing. He wrote three major encyclicals with, a, with an asterisk here for the fourth, which was completed by Pope Francis, as well as three books during his papacy. His encyclicals focused on the key things. Love, which was Deus Caritas S in 2005. Hope, which is Space Solving in 2007. And Caritas in Veritate, a response to the global financial crisis in 2009. His books, likewise, were focused on the essential nature of our faith, which is an encounter with Jesus himself. He wrote two longer and one shorter book on Jesus of Nazareth in a series which drew from his immense scholarship and deep faith to describe anew the meaning of Christ's activity here on earth and its role as the foundation of our faith. His papacy was fundamentally an intellectual and spiritual continuation of the work of St. John Paul II. He was proclaiming the new evangelization, the primacy of the intimate relationship with Christ in truth and love. Now, by 2012, the Pope was starting to slow down. In an interview he gave later, he told journalist Peter Sebald that his doctors had told him that he would no longer be able to travel abroad. And since World Youth Day was scheduled for Rio de Janeiro and, and the World Meeting of the Families in 2015 was scheduled for Philadelphia, the Pope realized that because of his health, he was no longer too able to, to really do his job. And this is what prompted his contemplation and prayerful consideration of resignation. In a consistory of cardinals on February 10th, 2013, the Pope stated that he would resign the papacy effective February 28th, 2013, and continue to serve the church through a life of prayer and contemplation. He was the first Pope since Gregory XII during the Great Western Schism to resign the papacy. And after resignation, he was called Pope Emeritus, and he lived out his life in seclusion in a small convent in the Vatican grounds. After the election of his successor, Pope Francis, who we'll talk about in the next episode, he made notable appearances at great events in the church, and Pope Francis regularly brought new cardinals to greet the Pope Emeritus after he made them, but his public life decreased immensely. In late December of 2022, his health began to wane, and he passed away on December 31st, 2022. He will be, we're not sure right now, but he will probably be buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and was succeeded, as we've already said, by Pope Francis, and we'll talk about him in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Links podcasts at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.